0: Being the people of God in the pandemic, and that's what we've been considering together. How do we, as the people of God, walk through these days, walk through this storm? How uh, are we to live through this? What, What is it that God is expecting of us as his sons and daughters, bearing his namesake as we walk through these days? And we've been reflecting on these things in these weeks and now we come to the the place where we're looking at how do we live in the present where do we go from here and and how do we live forward in these unusual extraordinary days where we are faced with some of these challenges as I've just talked with you about that we have not had to consider before how do we live in the present John chapter 20 is the passage that uh, we are reflecting on in this week and that I've been reflecting on in this past week as I have prepared for this time together with you. And, and we're not going to take the time and read it from start to finish as much as I would like to do that this morning, but for sake of time we won't. But I want to encourage you to do that. Read this chapter uh, John chapter 20. I'm going to touch on some of the aspects of it and allude to some of the, the verses in it, but I encourage you to read it because this is where the church's mission really began. This is where the apostles, the, the, the first apostles were really commissioned and, and the first apostle, in fact, and get this, it was a woman, who was commissioned as Mary, the first one to the tomb, was told by Jesus to go. Go and tell my brothers, he says. And she becomes that first apostle to the apostles. So whatever issues you might have with women in church leadership and whether or not they qualify, well, you'll have to take that up with Jesus because the very first messenger he sent was a woman, uh, believe it or not. And uh, what an incredible thing that is to to consider, even just that detail. The church's mission begins here. And interestingly enough, it begins, as you read this passage in John chapter 20, it begins with three things. Three things which have become very familiar to us, especially in these recent days. And here's what they are. It began with tears, with locked doors, and with doubt. Tears, locked doors, and with doubt. On that first Easter day, Mary Magdalene was weeping in the garden outside Jesus' empty tomb. Verses 1-18 to of chapter 20, John's Gospel. And to her astonishment, Jesus met her, spoke to her, and gave her a commission. She was to go and tell the disciples who happened to be in hiding that He was alive. And that He was now to be enthroned as Lord of the world. And as I said, she became the first apostle to the apostles. That same evening, the disciples were still in hiding with the doors locked, verses 19 to 23 of John 20. They were naturally afraid that the people who had come after Jesus would also soon be coming after them. However, the locked doors didn't stop Jesus, He came. And He stood with them. He shared a meal with them. And He gave them their mission. Listen to these words. As the Father has sent Me. This is verses 21 and 22. As the Father has sent Me, He said to them, so I'm sending you. As the Father has sent Me, so I'm sending you. In other words, with the full authority that the Father has sent Me, I am sending you now with that same full authority. And when He had said this, then look what He does next. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. What did that mean? The most obvious way of taking it is to say, as Jesus was to Israel, so the church is to the world. Their mission, our mission, proceeds from His. And and then He bestows on them the unlimited resource and equipment that they will need for the discharge of their mission. The fullness of the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. He breathes on them And says, receive the Holy Spirit. He calls them. He equips them. He mobilizes them for their mission. All in these two verses. And notice the allusion to Genesis 2 verse 7 here is unmistakable. You cannot miss this. The old creation in Genesis 2 verse 7 began with what? The breath of God. And now here the new creation begins with what? The breath of God, the resurrected Son. Incredible. The next week, the disciples were in the same room. This is a week later now. They're in the same room and they're locked in once more. Thomas hadn't been there the first time. Jesus came to them and appeared to them. He has spent the week telling the others that that he'd never believe it until Jesus showed up and proved that he was really him. Verses 24-29 to 29 in John 20. So Jesus came again and invited Thomas to touch and see the wounds in his hands and in his side. I have a slide here, if you bring it up, of uh, Caravaggio's art piece in it, where Thomas, he inv- he's inviting Thomas to touch the wounds. And Thomas had been saying this all week, unless he comes, unless I can see him, unless I can touch the wounds. So what does Jesus do? He comes again and Thomas is invited to touch and see the wounds in Jesus' hands and in his side. The scars which proved His identity. The wounds that revealed His love. Tears, locked doors, and doubt seem to go together. Different ways of saying similar things. Together they sum up a lot of where we are globally right now. Tears. Tears in plenty, of course. So many lives terribly cut short. And the numbers continue to rise in certain parts of the world. It, 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 it's inconceivable. Locked doors. Well, precisely. The fear isn't just of certain people who may have it in for us, like the disciples, the... the The first apostles were, it was the case for them. It's larger than that. It's more nebulous fear that every stranger in the street might, without knowing it, give me a sickness which could kill me within a week. I might be able to give it to them as well. So, lockdown. We shut ourselves in, we distance ourselves. And like a weed then growing between the weeping and the lockdown, there is doubt. What's this all about? Is there any room left for faith? For hope? If we are locked away from all but the few in our bubble, is there any room for love? These are the hard and pressing questions that we feel and we face right now. They're the kind of questions the church ought to be good at answering. At answering not just verbally. I mean, who's really listening anyway? But answering incarnationally. Answering in a living, life-giving way. If the earliest disciples found Jesus coming to meet them in their tears and fears and doubt, and interestingly enough, without chiding judgment, notice that about Jesus. When He shows up and the disciples are hidden away and locked in this room, He doesn't chide them with condemnation and judgment, wagging His finger. Shame on you hiding in here like this. Where's your faith? He doesn't do that. What does he say to them? And he says it twice. Peace be to you. What if we started talking like that? Instead of some of the other ways. The other statements we make. Peace be unto you. No chiding judgment, no condemnation, but speaking it twice to them. Perhaps we can too speak this to the world. Speak this to our neighbors. Speak it to our co-workers. Speak it to those in our bubble. Not just with our words, but even the way we live, our attitude, our demeanor, our temperament, our disposition. But how? How? how what in particular might it mean might it look like to say that as jesus was to israel so the church should be for the world as we've seen john's gospel displays the signs that jesus was doing we looked at the story of lazarus in john's gospel now John chapter 20. John's Gospel displays the signs that characterized Jesus' life and ministry. And notice that these signs were not things like earthquakes or famines or plagues or floods. They were not meant to frighten people into submission or belief or to warn them that the world was coming to a shuddering halt. These weren't the kind of signs that characterized Jesus. Rather, they were signs of new life, signs of new creation, signs of love and compassion, signs of God coming into the ordinary and making it extraordinary. Coming to bring healing to a world of sickness. Giving bread to the hungry. Sight to the blind. Life to the dead. They were signs that the world was coming into a new springtime. A new beginning. These were the signs of Jesus. His life and His ministry. In the upper room, Jesus was commissioning his tearful, fearful, doubting followers to do the same. And so they did. Right from the start. In Paul's very first letter, in fact, he tells the Galatian believers, Galatians 6, verse 10, Do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. As the people of God lived this out, the surrounding world couldn't believe what they were seeing, what they were witnessing, what they were experiencing. We've already considered this together earlier in this series of reflections. That the people of God, when faced with a plague, for instance, The early Christians would pitch in and nurse people, sometimes saving lives, sometimes dying themselves. Their strong belief in God's promises for life beyond the grave gave them a fearlessness which enabled them both to keep cheerful in the face of death and to go to the aid of sufferers whose own families and communities had abandoned them for fear of the disease. This is well laid out in Rodney Stark's classic book, The Rise of Christianity, if you're familiar with it at all. In chapter 4 in particular, it's a sociological study of how Christianity grew in the Roman Empire. And Stark makes a compelling case that the way the Christians behaved in the great plagues of the early centuries was a significant factor in contributing to the spread of faith. Stark and others who have followed him have collected the evidence from the plagues of the 170s A.D. which killed the emperor Marcus Aurelius and the 250s. Nobody's quite sure what diseases they were, perhaps smallpox and measles, both killers when attacking unprepared populations. The emperor Julian, who tried to reconvert the Roman Empire in the late 4th century after it had become officially Christian under Constantine, complained that the Christians, listen to this, the Christians were much better at looking after the sick, and for that matter, the poor, than the ordinary non-Christian population. How's that for a reputation to have as the people of God? He was trying to lock the stable door, Julian was, after the horse had already bolted and gotten out. The Christ followers were being for the world what Jesus had been for Israel. And people took notice. Something new was happening. I wonder if that could happen in days like these. This new movement continued. It was the followers of Jesus who went on to build hospitals and hospices, They were also the first in the field of education to make it available outside the circles of the elite and in the care of the poor. A lot of our colleges and universities these days have their origins in this movement of the people of God. Our institutions like to disconnect from that root system because they don't like to acknowledge that, but that's the fact of history. In the words of Stark, in his book, the success of the West, including the rise of science, rested entirely on religious foundations. And the people who brought it about were devout Christians. All were needed, as they still are. As for medicine, It's it's only in the very modern period that there has been something of a lull in major epidemics. As germs became identified and understood, vaccination and other preventative measures became the norm. So from the time of Jesus until the last century or two, plagues and the like have continued to come and go often with terrifying consequences. If we thought that because we now live in the modern world, we were exempt, that our science and technology had now produced progress that would eliminate all such things, we were obviously wrong just like those at the end of the 19th century who thought that Western society was now advancing smoothly, cruising toward the kingdom of God. Even so, throughout church history, Jesus' followers have usually avoided such lines of thought. Instead, like the church in Antioch, which we have looked at together, They have got on with the job. When the majority would turn a blind eye or head for the hills, they have visited prisoners, cared for the wounded, welcomed strangers, fed the hungry, tended to the sick. In most past ages, that has been done. Day and night, in good times and bad. In the Black Death, also known as the bubonic plague, that affected Eurasia and Northern Africa and Europe in 1347 to 51. In war and peace, in the city, in the city slums and the rural farmhouses. The church has done this at obvious considerable, and often fatal risk to themselves. The urge to see the face of the Lord Jesus Himself in the faces of the needy and oppressed in accordance with Matthew 25 has always been a strong driving force for the people of God. Martin Luther faced several plagues in Wittenberg, Germany, and elsewhere in the 1520s and 1530s. His writings of spiritual counsel are known for a combination of down-to-earth wisdom and practical godly devotion. He encouraged true, trusting, God-fearing faith, which is neither presumptuous nor rash, and does not tempt or test God. He advised the church to remain at their post and that they should only flee from a plague if they had made proper provision for the safety of those left behind. He offers counsel. Counsel which, when you hear this, It's going to sound as relevant today as it was 500 years ago. The right approach to plagues, he says, should be practical as well as faithful. This, he says, is how one should think. And I quote here. These are his words. The enemy has sent poison and deadly dung among us. Isn't that a good way to put it? This pandemic? Poison and deadly dung. And so, listen to his wisdom and his practicality here. And so I will pray to God that he may be gracious and preserve us. Then I will fumigate to purify the air, give and take medicine, and avoid places and persons where I'm not needed in order that I may not abuse myself and that through me, others may not be infected and inflamed with the result that I become the cause of their death through my negligence. If God wishes to take me, He will be able to find me. At least I have done what He gave me to do and am responsible neither for my own death nor the death of others. But if my neighbor needs me, I shall avoid neither person nor place but feel free to visit and help him. There's gritty wisdom at the heart of this. Luther clearly believed that the normal course of action was for a Christ follower to without negligence and being full of care stay and help rather than run away when a plague strikes a district. Yet... He obviously understood, even in the days before people understood, how germs and viruses worked. Remember that. This was before the days when people understood how germs and viruses worked. The way we do today. He obviously understood that it was quite possible for a well-meaning person to inadvertently make matters worse because of their negligence. We know that only too well, don't we? Someone today may carry and transmit the COVID-19 virus without knowing they even have it. Therefore, the natural inclination of a Jesus follower is to obey Jesus' call to go and help at the place of danger even at the risk of one's own life, today that looks rather different than that apparently heroic action might easily make matters worse. So we consider it in this light. The generous one-dimensional desire to be a hero, to do the right thing, Luther is saying, needs to be balanced out with the equally generous willingness to restrain apparent heroism when it might itself bring disaster. So don't run, don't flee, he says, help those who need help, but also use wisdom and restraint so that you do not inadvertently bring the cause of transmission and even death to someone else in your good intentions. I like the balance in all of this. We don't make excuses for doing nothing. Out of our lament must come fresh action. At the very least, those properly trained, authorized, and protectively clothed and safely arranged must be allowed to spiritually attend to the sick and to the dying. As the people of God, grateful that in the last two or three centuries, the long-term calling of the church to bring healing and hope has been shared by medical health professionals, some of whom themselves are devout Christ-followers. We must work creatively and supportively with our health care profession. Not the least to ensure a fully rounded, fully human approach, but also to administer appropriate spiritual care. And this particularly applies when people are near the point of death. The hospice movement of the last 50 years has been largely a Christian innovation. Privately funded, witnessing to a hope that the field of medicine has sometimes ignored. Call to Jesus' followers then as we confront our own doubts and those of our neighbors through tears and from behind locked doors, is to be sign producers for God's kingdom. To demonstrate this same example that Jesus set for us. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. In the fullness of the Spirit, He calls us, He commissions us, He sends us, and He gives us everything we need, fully resourced in the fullness of the Spirit. We are to implement, to be incarnations and demonstrations of kingdom signposts, action signals, not just words, which speak like Jesus signs of new creation. Of healing for the sick, of food for the hungry, of forgiveness of sin. This is our vocation, said Saint Francis of Assisi. To heal wounds, to bind what is broken, to bring home those who are lost. Meaning what? What does that look like? What does that well running food banks, working with thing ministries like City Reach who we are connected to here with Pastor Craig Savage working in homeless shelters volunteering to help those visiting relatives in prison and so on these can be rewarding ministries but they and all similar things we know are also very demanding For them, we will need, as Mary and Thomas and the disciples in the upper room needed, the living presence of Jesus and the powerful, resourceful breath of the Holy Spirit. This is our promise and gift. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, says King Jesus. Receive the Holy Spirit that we can and would do in and for the whole world what He did for Israel. That we would live that. And that we would live it in the balance of wisdom that He demonstrated as well. Contextualizing it to our day and our situation, understanding that there is a restraint that we must keep, but yet in that restraint, still ways that we can somehow touch and reach and bring life. Whether it be through the monitor of a computer screen where we are FaceTiming or Skyping or Zooming with someone else, in order to respect the distance that must be kept, but yet at the same time, bring the life of Jesus near to them. However that may need to be done, we would give ourselves to do it. We don't make excuses for doing nothing. We do what we can, but we do it wisely. And as as Luther so admonished us, we exercise every practicality and. Take every precaution that needs to be taken and abide by all of the health advisories that we are given. But yet, that does not become an excuse to do nothing.